I love John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It was given to me when I was in my early 20s, and I had a million focuses. didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I was all over the place. And I read Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, and it, it, it haunted me in, in many ways. Am I wasting my life? What is this life for? One of the illustrations that he used in the book that stuck with me and still sticks out in my mind is a story about a ship. The ship is called the, the, uh, the Queen Mary. And the ship had two purposes in her life. The ship prior to World War II was used during peacetime as a, as a luxury liner. During World War II, it was transformed into a, a, a troop transport. Now today, in Long Beach, California, you can walk through this ship, and, and it's sort of laid out as a museum. And on one side of the, the, the ship, you can see how it was decorated and what it looked like when it was a luxury liner. On the other side, you can see what the ship looked like after it was transformed into a troop transport during World War II. And as you walk through on the left, you'll see a beautiful dining room, spacious, luxurious, breathtaking, dazzling tablecloths and, and, and uh, um, silverware, forks, knives, and, and spoons that sparkle. And on the right side, what you see is, is a hollowed dining hall. In the middle is a metal tray with 15 plates and 15 saucers crammed on this tray, and all throughout this space are bunk beds. Not two or three tiers high, but eight tiers high. The ship during peacetime was this luxury liner that boasted 3,000 passengers at sea. During the war, it was transformed, and it carried 20,000 soldiers to battle. Now what sticks out to me in this story is Ralph Winter who tells the story. He, he says this. He says, how repugnant to the peacetime masters this transformation must have been. Those who built this ship, those who loved this ship as a luxury liner. How terrible it would have been to them to see this transformation. But then he goes on. He says to look at it, or to, to do it, took a national emergency of course. The survival of a nation depended on it. Then he goes on, he says, the essence of the Great Commission today is that the survival of many millions of people depend on its fulfillment. Do you guys get that? So here's this luxury liner. The survival of a nation depended on the luxury liner becoming a wartime ship. Forgetting the luxury and moving into a whole new reality. And he says the essence of the Great Commission is that there are millions of people today, the survival of millions of people depend on it. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we living our lives as the luxury liner, peacetime, or are we living our lives as the wartime ship? Now, in case you're new to Christianity, the Great Commission is a, uh, a nickname given to a mandate given by Jesus himself to us, to Christians, to all of his disciples. And the mandate is found in Matthew 22, go, 28. Go into all of the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of them, baptizing them, and teaching all things I have commanded. That is our mandate. If you are a living, breathing follower of Jesus Christ today, that is your mandate. That is the great commission. 
Now, any great organizational leader will tell you that the most effective organizations are organizations which have a singular focus. So let me give you an example. If you have a pizza shop, what, what should the focus of your pizza shop be? Pizzas, to sell pizzas, exactly, to make pizzas. The better pizza, the better you're doing. Uh, Fadley's down on, in Lexington Market. Anybody ever enjoyed a Fadley crab cake? Okay, so like me and one other person? Okay. Um, what all does Fadley's sell? Crab cakes, right? I hope they don't sell anything else because this will like mess up my illustration. <laughs> Fadley's is about crab cakes, right? Now what is it that we as a church and you as an ind individual ought to be about? What is it that we should be about? Your focus used to be love, relationships. Your focus used to be your job or success. Your focus used to be money. But God has opened your eyes to a whole new reality. God has opened your eyes to the reality that we are not at home in this world. This world is not the end. He's opened your eyes to the reality that earthly success without Jesus is disastrous. You believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You believe that this God became flesh and dwelt among us. You believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who revealed God to us and showed us that there is more to life than the here and the now. You believe that this Jesus lived a life of active obedience before God for you. You believe that this Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. Why? Because God wanted to repair the relationship with you and sins had to be forgiven in order for that to happen. You believe that this Jesus rose from the dead to be the judge of the living and the dead. You believe that if you accept Jesus now, he will accept you forever in heaven. And if you reject Jesus now, he will forever reject you. You believe that every man and every woman is commanded to believe this gospel. You believe that this is what matters in life. You believe that this is all we have. This is the hope of the world. This is the hope of reality. If people today reject Christ, then they reject God. The gospel, or the, the Great Commission rather, has transformed your focus. You see, with all of that being true, Jesus has come to you and he said, look, I'm giving you a new mission. All right, this is like coming to Fadley's and saying, hey, you're no longer selling crab cakes, you're selling pizza. You've got a whole new mission and this is greater than selling pizza. You have, you have received a word, go into all of the world and preach this gospel. Let people know about it, be salt and be light, work your job, do your thing, live in your neighborhood, build your house, do what you've got to do. But your focus is this. It's transformed everything. This poem that uh, the pastor that I had as a, ch as a child, he, he, was, he was the kind of pastor that would quote poems all the time in his sermons, and he would use the same poem all the time. Like, there were like four or five poems that he would quote all the time. One of them was, was this, Only one life twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last.
that stuck with me, and it's, it's true. You know, every day, every day we encounter and see and, and live in a city with thousands of people who are lost. and on their way to an eternity without God, under the wrath of God, on their way to an eternity with no relationship with Jesus Christ. There are entire people groups such as the Uyghurs, eight million people who have no access to the gospel. You have neighbors that don't know this good news, and you are salt and light. You have the answer. You, 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 you know the truth and you encounter them every day. We live in a, in a city where much worse than just this reality of people who don't know Christ, we live in a city and in a world where the glory of God is being robbed. You see, when people do not turn and worship God, the, the very uh, thing that should break our hearts the most is that God is robbed of His glory. It's that God is, is not being worshipped by His image bearers. Human beings created to worship Him are worshipping other things. We live in a city that doesn't worship God, we worship guns. We live in a city that doesn't honor God, we honor power. We live in a city that doesn't treasure Christ, we treasure money. And friends, what I'm trying to say, I'm repeating myself, you might realize that, but we have the answer. Don't you see? Like we've got this, this new horizon, this new reality of what life is all about. And the question I'm asking this morning is simply this, what are we doing about it? We're going to spend just this one week in Haggai, and I'm calling us this morning to repentance. Let me give you some context here. The year was around 520 B.C., and Israel, the people of God, the Jews, had returned to Jerusalem after years of being in captivity. So they've returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls around the city, they've rebuilt their homes, and the context is simply this, that the temple, or what's referred to in here in the passages. Is, it's referred to as the house, the house of the Lord, the temple still lies in ruins. Now, why is this a big deal? What is the problem with the fact that their houses are rebuilt, the wall is rebuilt, yet the temple still lies in ruins? Second Samuel chapter 7 helps us understand, you don't have to turn there, but it helps us understand why this is a big deal. What we discover is that this house, this temple is the house of God. This is the dwelling place in the Old Testament of God. God's glory fills the what in the Old Testament? The temple. God's presence is experienced in the temple. Meaning, if you want to taste the glory of God, rebuild the temple. Right? If you want to experience the dwelling place of God, then build the temple. If you want to display the glory of God to the nations, then rebuild the temple. Now God here is speaking in Haggai to the leaders. Zerubbabel, which is a wonderful name. I dare you to name your child Zerubbabel. And uh, Joshua. 
In verse 2, we see the message that comes to them, and we see why this message is coming. Look at right there in verse 2. It says, the people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, let me remind you, the temple is the dwelling place of God. If you want to see the glory of God, you rebuild the temple. If you want to experience the presence of God, you rebuild the temple. If you want to taste the goodness and the favor of God, you rebuild the temple. If you want to display the glory of God to the world, you rebuild the temple. And what are the people saying? Don't you see what the problem is? It's not yet time to rebuild the temple. This is why this book exists. Is because they're saying it's not yet time. AKA spiritual apathy. It's not yet time means you're apathetic. Now let me let me qualify that for you. If it's 4:30 p.m. and you get off at 5 p.m and you say it's not yet time to go home, you're right. It's not yet time. If you want to have kids, and, and God hasn't given you a spouse yet, it's not yet time to have a family. But if you're in a house that's burning, and someone comes to you and says, hey, Andrea, your house is burning. Your house is on fire. You gotta leave, and you say, I don't know, I don't know if it's time. You know, I'm still doing my thing. Well, that is called apathy. <laughs> That's apath- apathy at its worst. Now, friends, listen, if the if the glory of God is at stake, right? If the presence of, of God is at stake, if the, the, the very reality of this, this world and eternity is at stake, and we're saying it's not yet time, that's just apathy. We're just sitting on our hands. God is restoring to himself a people in us, through us. The judgment of God is coming to the world. The glory of God is experienced and seen in His redeemed people, the people of God, the church. And through the Great Commission, we have this mandate to see the people of God built. And if we say it's not yet time, we're just simply being apathetic. Let me just kind of break this down for you. Where is the glory of God seen in the world today? It's not in the temple. That was Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, after Christ, what we see is that the Spirit no longer dwells in buildings made by hands, right? But it dwells where? In the hearts of a people. Lives that are changed. The church, and by that I don't mean a building. I don't mean a church building. But the gathering of God's people, people who were chained to the kingdom of darkness, and they were living as lost people, and they've been freed to a new horizon. And they're coming together as one body, and they're going out on mission into the world. This is where the glory of God is seen. This is the display of God's glory in the world. 
This is, this is where the gospel is, is made visible and tangible. We can see it as we come and as we go. The New Testament, I want you to understand me, the New Testament correlation of the temple is the church. And what I mean by that are the, the, the people of God, the individuals who have been transformed and brought together as his body, the lost, saved, disciples made, baptized, and taught all things that he has commanded. So our singular focus, friends, our singular focus is this mandate, make disciples. And if you have been saying, I get it, but in my life it's, it's not yet time to be on that mission, well, this sermon is for you. Now, if, if, if you are all about the things of God and you're just banging on all cylinders, then just be encouraged this morning. But this message comes to those of us who find a little bit of apathy in our hearts. The greatest killer of Christians. Apathy. The greatest destroyer of salt, spiritual apathy. The greatest dimmer of light, spiritual apathy. The greatest confrontation to the glory of God is spiritual apathy. So what do we do? In this passage in Haggai 1, we see here the causes of spiritual apathy, and we see how to defeat it. Let's move fairly quickly through this. First, spiritual apathy is caused by misplaced priorities. We see this here in verse 4. He says, is it time for you to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now consider your ways. That word, that phrase, consider your ways, is repeated throughout here. Just think about it. Think about the way that you're living in comparison. Verse 6, you've sown, you've eaten, you've, you, you, you drink, you clothe, you, you earn wages. Verse 9, you looked for much. Spiritual apathy is caused here in this context by misplaced priorities of God's people. First, they're prioritizing comfort. That's number one on their list. You see it right there in verse 4. They're living in paneled houses, which in, the, in ancient Palestine would be luxurious living. They've been focused on this, these beautiful homes that they're building, and they're saying it's just not yet time to get on to the work of God. They're focused on comfort. They're focused on, on, on the, the, the four walls that are around them as opposed to the things of God and the work of God. They're building a new deck. They're putting on a patio. They're putting on an addition while their neighbors are lost and on their way to hell and they have no time to have them over for dinner. Spiritual apathy is driven by forgetting that there is a greater comfort than this comfort we receive in this world. Let me explain it this way. I, I am one to fall asleep during movies. I, don't, I can't remember the last movie I watched the entire way through. Um, and it's, it's happened more than once where I wake up, the movie's over, I'm on the couch, it's like, you know, one in the morning, and... Uh, and I have to make this decision. Do I stay on the couch? 
Have you ever been there? Do I want to get up and leave the comfort of this couch? And you know what? Every single time in the past when that has happened, I get up off the couch and I forsake the comfort of the couch. Why? It's because I know that my bed is more comfortable than the couch. Right? Isn't this the way it is with with the things of the Lord? We are so comfortable right now. We've been uh, pursuing comfort. It's become an idol for us. And what we're beginning to realize right now is that there is a greater comfort. You see, Jesus became uncomfortable so that those of us who idolize comfort here might see him and might find in him a greater comfort than we can ever imagine here. And so to call you then, uh, friends, away from comfort is not to say uh, comfort is bad. It's to say there's a greater comfort. There's something better than what you've been trying to achieve here. And that is found in the life of Christ, pursuing the things of God. Mission is uncomfortable. The mission that we are called to is uncomfortable. Just think of it uh, at a very simple level. Uh, to, to develop a friendship with someone that you're not, they're not like you. Maybe to develop a relationship with someone of another race, someone of a different culture, might be uncomfortable for you. But friends, you're going to be together for all of eternity. You might as well get comfortable with each other now, right? Or think of it this way. Uh, There are conversations that we need to have as a church often, just individually, just getting together with each other, that in all reality are not comfortable. But if we just simply have comfortable conversations with each other, we're going to stint our growth. And then if we just broaden this and we think of the mission of God going forward into the world, speaking with someone about Jesus, an intellectual, a hustler on the corner, someone who, who, who you feel like, man, they're just, there's no way. It's, it's not comfortable to do that. Some of you need to move into the neighborhood. I don't know who that is, but you're too comfortable. What would it look like for us to, 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 to walk away from our comforts and to embrace the mission of God? To embrace the mission that we have been called to that isn't comfortable. Secondly, apathy is caused by distractions, the very nature of their statement. They say the time has not yet come. That means there are, there are other things that we're focusing on. And, and to, to focus on rebuilding the temple in their case would require work, but they're busy with their own homes. Rebuilding the, the temple would require money and wood, but they're distracted because they need money and wood for their own homes. Now, we are distracted in life. We have many distractions from the work of God. Some are absolutely sinful and needless, like alcohol addiction and uh, smoking weed all the time. Distractions to the mission that God has put you on. Because every night we're just changing, changing our, 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 our mindset through getting high. Or many are, are, are more subtle and not necessarily sinful, such as this, housing renovations that keep us from developing friendships in the church and in the community. Kids 
with, with uh, extremely busy uh, extracurricular schedules. Every night of the week, doing something different. Dance one night, soccer the next. Uh, sp- sports. I mean, sports, uh, some of you love sports. That's great. And it can become a distraction as well. But we have no time to invest in people because the game is going to be on. Movies. Netflix. Just wasting our evenings. Social media. I mean, hundreds of things we could go on that create a, a missional distractions in our life. Or here in verse 9, another distraction is simply this. It's greed. He says, you looked for much. Meaning, the desire to acquire more and more and more for what can become a distraction for us. Look, making money is a good thing. Working a job to make money, that is a great reason to work a job. And greed is very, very wicked and very distracting. The worst thing that could ever happen to our city and in our neighborhood is for people to get rich, to be successful, and to miss the kingdom of God. Family, your neighbors are lost. Thousands of, uh, of people who are heading toward an eternal separation from God. There are kids in this city and in, right around us who need mentors, who need people to come alongside them and say, look, I'm here for you. Here's my number. Here's, here's my Facebook page. Like, if there's ever anything you need, call me. Connect with me. We, there, there are uh, people who are standing on the street corners and they believe that this is all uh, they have and it's, they believe that it's their only option and, and you might drive by and look down your nose at them when what they need is your friendship, a relationship with you. There are kids in the foster care system. Do you know that the foster care system is exploding in Baltimore? Like there are too many kids and there's no place to put them. And here we are with an extra bedroom. Think about it. The mission of God the great commission that we've received from Him to be about eternal things and not merely temporal things. When Jesus was here, how many distractions did He have? Satan tried. He tried to distract Him with wealth and hunger, hunger, but Jesus had a singular focus, and that was redemption. Nothing would take His eyes off that goal, and nothing will take our eyes off of the goal, the aim, the race, Our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What can distract us? How can we allow anything trivial to get in the way of what God is doing in us and through us? And how might the singular focus of Jesus enable you to have a singular focus in your own life? Quickly here, let me just briefly mention this. Secondly, we see that spiritual apathy evokes the opposition of God in your life. One thing that we know as parents, that we've learned, those of you who are fellow parents with me, is that sometimes with our rebellious kids, we need to remove uh, some elements of fruitfulness in their life so that they might know that they can't have their cake and eat it too. And you know what we found is that that's actually love. It's actually grace to do that to our kids. Well, in the same way, God opposes those of us who are apathetic. Let me just show it to you here in the text briefly. In verse 6, look at it. We see that they're not satisfied. They've got stuff. It's not that they don't have anything. They've got food. They've got seed. They've got 
clothing, but they want more. They're not satisfied. Well, this is uh, given to them as, uh, uh, as, as an example of God's active opposition against them. God is saying, I will not let you be satisfied in just simply acquiring stuff and abandoning eternity. I won't, I love you too much to let you find satisfaction in these things. And maybe you could quickly agree, like I have been acquiring things and I've been looking for all of these, the happiness in all of these different places and I'm not satisfied. I thought this thing was going to satisfy me and I'm still not satisfied. Friends, that is God's opposition in your life. He won't let you be satisfied. And that is God's grace to you. We also see here that he's, uh, uh, in addition to this unsatisfying attainment, there's unfruitful labor in verse 9 and 10. They're working, they're going, they're, 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 they're getting things, and God says, I just blew it all away. God says, I'm not letting the, grain, the, the ground produce for you. I'm, I'm sending a drought on the land. They are working hard in their own power, and God is blocking their fruitfulness. God is saying, you will not be satisfied and fruitful in your rebellion. Now, do you want God to be behind your work? Or do you want God in front of you blocking the fruitfulness of your work? Now, how do we understand this? How do we reconcile this with the God of grace? Well, here's how. God is very gracious to pull things from us, to block things, to oppose us when we are opposing Him. He's gracious because this is what causes us to turn. And this is what happens in the text. Look at it. Next part of the story, they turn. In verse 12, they turn. Spiritual apathy is destroyed by turning to God and finding help. Look at verse 12. They obey the voice of God. And the people obey the voice of God and they fear God. How do we destroy the spiritual apathy in our life? Let me tell you how not to destroy it. What not to do. Don't just try to stop pursuing comfort. Don't just say, oh, I'm going to wear like a really uncomfortable shirt all the time and I'm going I'm to prick myself or do something just to make myself uncomfortable. That's called stupid. Don't just try to make yourself uncomfortable. Don't just simply try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, uh, and become less greedy. How do we turn? How do we change? How are we reinvigorated in our mission? What would it look like for us to, to turn? Well, it's just simply in the turning itself. That's what I want you to see. What did the thief do on the cross? He turned. He literally turned his head and he looked to Christ. And when he turned and looked at Christ, Christ turned and looked at him. And that changed everything for him in his dying moment. Turning. This is what we call repentance. You might notice in the text that they haven't even done anything yet. Where it says that they obeyed the voice, that just means that they believed it. They haven't done anything. They haven't picked up a hammer yet. They just hear the word of God. 
They hear the call. They see it. They're they're reminded of the glory of God and, and what they ought to be about, and they just simply believe it. And they turn in repentance. That's what God wants you to do right now, is turn in repentance. I believe that we as a church need to have a season of repentance, saying, God, we we repent of our apathy. We're starting community groups next week, and I'm going to encourage community groups to take a week, maybe a month together just in, in repentance for our spiritual apathy. But we don't end there. This is where the change comes. I want, I want to point this out to you, and we're going to close with this in verse, verse 13. After they turn, remember, they haven't done anything yet. They believe. After they turn, they receive the Lord's message, which says this, I am with you, declares the Lord. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Look what happens. They turn in faith and they say, I, we repent. We change our minds. And it's not until they look to God that God then looks, looks to them and he stirs up their passions. You see, we don't wait until we feel right. We don't wait until we feel like we have the passion before we turn. We are apathetic And we just admit it. And in our apathy, we turn to God and we say, I'm apathetic. Like, I've got nothing. And when we're falling on our knees in repentance before God, and God then turns to us and He says, I am with you, meaning I am sending you my help. And He stirs up the Spirit. He stirs up our passions. He stirs up our dreams. He stirs up our feelings. He, he gives us new desires. And we change. Friends, this is Baltimore. The work here is very, very hard. And it's easy to be distracted with the cost of rent, the jobs that some of you guys work. It's easy to be, be distracted by our desire for comfort. It's easy to become disillusioned because the work is so hard. And say, look, I've tried. Like I invited somebody to church. <laughs> they, they, they said, no, I'm done. I quit. It's easy to become disillusioned. And all of that, family, is is apathy. It just leads to apathy. We become apathetic. While there are millions of souls whose eternal destiny is is at stake here, are we going to live our lives? Are we going to operate as a church? Are you going to operate as individuals throughout the week at your jobs, in your communities? As if you're living during peacetime on the luxury liner. Or are we changing things? We're saying, no, it's wartime. The kingdom of darkness has been advancing in our city for far too long. But the word of God has come, and it says that the gospel will prevail, the church will be built, and the kingdom, the the, the gates of, of the kingdom of darkness will not prevail the attack of the church. That sounds like war to me. And I think there are some there is some rethinking that has to happen in our vessels.
And it won't happen if we just go out on our own power. We just walk out of here and try to do some cool stuff in the city. That's, that's going to do nothing. It'll happen when we turn and we look to God. If we go out on our own strength, we're lost. But if we go out with God's help, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. You know, here at the end we see that it took 24 days for them to change from the moment that they received the initial word until the moment that they began to rebuild the temple. It was 24 days. God could do this work in us, could send us his help, could reinvigorate our passions in 24 seconds. And maybe he already has. This is God's work, not ours. We're on God's mission, not ours. We just hear the word and we're obedient to it. And we let God do the rest. This is the life worth living. You know, at, at your job, in your home, on your block, as you live your life with this singular focus, glorify God through making disciples. That's an exhilarating life. That's a fun life. It's a life worth living. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you reinvigorate us, stir up our desires and our passions. May we be a people on mission in this world. God, don't let us at all be driven by guilt. Let us be driven by the love of Christ that we've received in the gospel. God, don't let us be driven by our own power. But as you were so kind to, to help the people uh, here in, in Haggai as they are rebuilding the temple, help us now. Stir up our heart and go before us. And may we be a people with this singular focus in life. And God, would you be glorified in our midst through making disciples here in Baltimore City. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.